Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week, we pick a starting point, and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to discover a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is episode 19. The Young Ones. Now this year, 2022, marks the 40th anniversary of the first broadcast of the British sitcom, or should I say anti-sitcom, The Young Ones. Oh, 40th, so it started in 1982. Fast math, I like it. (laughs) Very good. Some quick facts, as you say, 1982, it ran until 1984, just two series. Um, And interestingly, the BBC didn't really much care for it. Um, Well, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, a pilot episode was made and uh, the BBC didn't actually like it, but supposedly because Channel 4 television had just begun to broadcast and they had their eye on a young alternative audience, the BBC thought it needed to compete. And, And so against its better judgment, it actually commissioned and broadcast a series. Now, you know how on the show they used to have bands performing each episode? And they had Madness, Motorhead, uh, Dexys, Midnight, Runners and the Damned, amongst others. Um, Well, apparently that was done so the programme could be classified as light entertainment or variety instead of a sitcom because the BBC's sitcom budget had already been spent. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, isn't that funny? And I think it would be fair to say that The Young Ones was what one might describe as divisive. Yes. Would you say that? I mean, it was a huge hit with the young, while the older generation thought it was vulgar rubbish. Yeah. I remember being at school, and if you hadn't seen the young ones, then you couldn't be a cool kid for the day. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 because before registration or whatever like that, if you'd seen the young ones, then you could say, oh, did you see that bit where Vivian hit Rick over the head with a frying pan? Yeah, it's really funny. And then you'd be one of the cool kids. Oh, wow. I think I was a little bit too young, because I would have only been seven. So um, we didn't chat about those kind of things at uh, registration. Now, The Young Ones was written by Rick Mayle, Ben Elton and Lisa Mayer. Yes. And it was at the forefront of the 80s alternative comedy scene. Yeah. It was a sort of bastard child of the goons and Monty Python, I I suppose, wasn't it? Although having said that, I'm reading here with interest that Spike Milligan from The Goons didn't like it at all. And particularly Rick Mayle, um, who he is quoted as saying, Rick Mayle is putrid, absolutely vile. He thinks nose picking is funny and farting and all that. He's the arsehole of British comedy. Uh I'm I'm a bit disappointed in Spike there. It's a shame that he couldn't see that Rick was playing the character of Rick, who was the arsehole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A bit harsh, I thought. Um, And some more interesting facts, if you like, about the young ones. Now, you remember uh, Vivian, obviously played by Adrian Edmondson. Yeah. Vivian was a pretty weird spelling. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, it had a Y in it, didn't it? Yeah, it was V-Y-V-Y-A-N. Yeah. And it was spelt that way because one of the writers, Lisa Mayer, used to live on Vivian Terrace in Bristol. Okay. And so that's why he had that spelling. And the exteriors in the series were shot in Bristol, even though the young ones were students at Scumbag College in London. 
Oh, and it's filmed in Bristol. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. And talking of Vivian, um, as we mentioned, played by the brilliant Adrian Edmondson, of yeah. course. I didn't know this, but he was also a pop video director. Oh, was he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. He directed Fiesta by the Pokes. Did he? <laughs> he also directed Prime Mover by Zodiac Mind Warp. OK, I remember Zodiac Mind Warp. Uh, and he, he did a few a few others. And he, he even won a Best Video at the MTV Awards for one of your favourite bands, Squeeze, Hourglass. Oh, I remember the Hourglass video. Yeah, that's, um, that's directed. That's Adrian Edmondson. Yeah, directing that, yeah. Oh, that's great. And an interesting fact about Rick Mail, who yeah. played Lick, of yeah. course, albeit this happened well after the um, the young ones finished. This is a this is a weird fact, right? He and his wife Barbara persuaded Little Richard, the singer turned preacher, to baptise their daughter Rosemary at top London restaurant Lescargo. Bizarre. How bizarre is that? I mean, I've read it, but it just seems a little bit like an urban myth. Wow. But um, it's there on the internet, so who knows? And you'll remember that Rick went on to play the part of Alan Bastard in The yeah. New Statesman. Yeah. Well, uh, I read here that Conservative Minister Michael Portillo yeah. helped Rick research his role. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty funny. OK, I've been having a little look at Nigel Planer, who okay. played, obviously, Neil the Hippie. Of course. Who was relentlessly bullied and physically assaulted by Rick and Vivian. Interesting fact, when Nigel Planer started working on The Young Ones, yeah. he was David Essex's understudy in the West End musical Evita. Well, how about that? Yeah. So had Dave ever fallen sick, Nigel Planer would have played the part of Che Guevara. <laughs> something quite different to Neil the Hippie. Yeah. I'm just trying to picture Neil the Hippie being Che Guevara. Hey, guys. Oh, <laughs> hey, guys. This this Look. whole revolution thing is kind of really like bumming me out, man. <laughs> Remember when Nigel Planer, in character as Neil, released a cover version of Hole in My Shoe? I remember it well, yeah. And all that I knew was the hole in my shoe which was letting in water. I think we may have had the seven-inch single. Anyway, he won a Brit Award for Best Comedy Song in 1985. Did he? The only time such a category has existed. And, um, you know, the song was originally recorded by a favourite of mine, Traffic. Oh, Traffic, yeah, of course, yeah, Steve Winwood, yeah. Yeah, both versions reached number two in the UK singles charts. Oh, OK. And Neil from The Young Ones version featured backing vocals yeah. by Barbara Gaskin. Do you Ooh, remember her? Barbara Gaskin, it's that rings a bell. That song with Dave Stewart, not the Eurythmics one. No, the other one, yeah, um, OK. Yeah. And Hole in My Shoe was produced by Dave Stewart. Oh, OK. Yeah. He'd obviously had the number one hit in 1981, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To, which itself was a cover. Yeah, we had that on a uh, compilation album called Chart Hits 81. That obviously was recorded by a number of other singers, but one notable version was Leslie Gore, who had a big hit with it in America in 1963. And the interesting thing about that is that was Quincy Jones's first job as a producer. Well, how about that? So going back to Hole in My Shoe, yeah. the song was written by Dave Mason of Traffic. Okay. Um, in fact, it was the first song he wrote. But the rest of Traffic's band members had disdain for the song and they never performed it live. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, Steve Winwood of the band described it as a trite little song, which it sort of is. Yeah. Um, and soon afterwards, Mason left the band as it became evident he wanted to go in a very different direction to the rest of the band. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Apparently, Mason was very good friends with Jimi Hendrix, and he played oh. the 12-string guitar on Jimi's version of Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. And um, Mason sings backing vocals on Crosstown Traffic 2. Oh, how about that? And for a brief period in the mid-1990s, yeah. Mason joined Fleetwood Mac. Good grief. Yeah, and released the album Time with them in 1995. And he toured with them over the course of 94, 95, but again didn't fit in, so left the band. OK. He's a bit of a, a, bit of a misfit, old Dave Mason. Right, just rewinding back to the fact that Nigel Planer, who played Neil and the Young Ones, was David Essex's understudy in the musical Evita, yeah. as we have learned. Um, I disappeared down the rabbit hole of Evita. Oh. Yeah. Now, of course, it was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim yeah. Rice, um, but it was Tim Rice who had the idea of making a musical based on Eva Perón, mm. the former first lady of the Argentinian leader Juan Domingo Perón, yeah. um, after hearing the end of a radio show about Eva Perón, okay. which intrigued him. Oh. So imagine if he had never heard yeah. that little snippet of a the end of a, a radio show, we would never have We had... wouldn't be sitting here in our dressing gowns talking about Evita. That is too true. <laughs> and apparently Tim Rice, he, when he was a kid, he was a, an avid stamp collector and he had always been fascinated by the image of Eva Perón right. on the Argentinian stamps. Oh, I don't know what um, that looks like. No. I don't think I've ever seen an Argentine stamp. Oh, you're really missing out. They're really quite something. Um, and he was unaware of her significance in Argentina's history and so... Thus began his research. And he became so fascinated during his um, research of Eva Perón, he named his first daughter after her. Oh. So Tim Rice's oldest daughter is called Eva. Nice. It's there a nice name. It's a good name. It's a solid name. And originally, Rice had suggested the idea of a musical uh, based on Eva Perón yeah. to Lloyd Webber. Yeah. But Lloyd Webber initially rejected the idea and instead decided to collaborate with Alan Akeborn yeah. on Jeeves, which was a musical based on the P.G. Woodhouse And what character. a success that was. Well, I mean, we all... We, yeah, Madonna also has made a film <laughs> uh, version of Jeeves. Yeah, that's right. It proved to be uh, a critical and commercial flop, mm. which I find it rather comforting to... Yeah. Comforting that even, uh, even, Andrew, even Andrew Lloyd Webber yeah. can muck up sometimes. It sort of gives hope yeah. to us all, in a way. Ooh, we're it? all human. Anyway, after the after the flop of Jeeves, Lloyd Webber then began developing Evita with Tim Rice. Yeah. yeah. Now I didn't know this, but Evita the musical was a concept album first. Oh, okay. And then from that, it became a West End musical show. So the original album was released in 1976, and the song taken from it, "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina," the mm. famous one, um, was sung by Julie Covington. Oh yes. And it reached number one in the UK singles chart in 1977. And Covington was then offered the part of Eva Peron yeah. when it went to the stage, but she turned it down. Right. Which led Elaine Page to take the role, yeah. famously. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And I thought this was interesting. For the original album, the part of Juan Peron, mm. that's Evita's husband, that was originally offered to Steve Marriott of the Small Faces. Oh. Apparently, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then to John Fogerty of Credence Clearwater Clearwater Revival. Revival. But they, uh, but they both turned it down. What a weird choices. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. And do you remember Murray Head? I do, One Night in Bangkok. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't realise that he was actually a, a, a star of the stage. Um, well, that is from a musical, isn't it? Yeah, well, I never knew that. Isn't that from Chess? It is, you're right, right. yeah. Which I think was co-written by the with the guys from ABBA. 
was it? Yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? Ooh. So Murray Head did some demos, but in the end, uh, Paul Jones from Manfred Mann sang uh, Juan's parts on that original album. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay, and I was reading the personnel yeah. on that original album yeah. of Evita, mm -hmm. and I thought it was interesting that Hank Marvin off of The Shadows played guitar on it, oh. on a number of the songs too, yeah. And then... Yeah. What happened? Then the stage show happened, and then another album was made. Oh, I see. With the original cast yeah. of the stage show, which is the album that my mum and dad had. Right. And I think it was Gay Fold Vinyl. Right. Um, and was David Essex on that one? And that was the David right. Essex and Elaine Page one, yeah, 1978. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. So it's like the first album was testing the water, maybe, to see yeah. if people liked the song. It was almost like a prototype, and then, oh, that did well because it. The, the, the lead song from it got to number one. So they thought, oh, well, we'll, we'll actually make a stage musical out of it. Maybe Lloyd Webber was being a bit careful after the disaster of Jeeves. Oh, yeah, could be. Did you know that Tim Rice is one of only 15 people to have an EGOT? Oh, an EGOT, yeah, OK. Do you know what an EGOT Go on, tell me yeah, what you Yeah, know I think is. an EGOT is someone who has um, won an Emmy, Grammy, uh, Oscar and Tony. Tony Award, that's, yeah. that's correct. Unsurprisingly, Andrew Lloyd Webber is one of the 15 okay. also. Other recipients include Audrey Hepburn, All right. John Gielgud, yeah. Whoopi Goldberg and yeah. John Legend. Oh, wow, how about that? And did you know that the EGOT acronym was coined by actor Philip Michael Thomas when his role... Well, on off the, of Miami Vice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When his role on the hit show Miami Vice brought him instant fame in 1984, <laughs> he stated a desire to achieve the EGOT within five years, bless him. <laughs> Did he get any? Uh, unfortunately, no, he's never been nominated for any of the EGOT awards. <laughs> Going back to the musical Evita, yeah. I found some great facts about Argentina. Oh, OK, nice. The name Argentina... Yeah which you might be able to work out, derives from the Latin word for silver, which is Argentum. Oh, yeah, OK, that sort of makes sense, yeah. yeah. And it's believed that this name was chosen due to the history of the European conquerors coming to South America to mine the precious metal. Typical that's, bloody colonisers going over yeah, there yeah. mining for precious metals yeah, and, that's right. and yeah, slaving we'll, all the locals. Yeah, that's right. We'll have this land now and uh, we'll start drilling and we'll get you to do all the hard work. Yeah, a little bit of politics there. A football legend, Maradona has inspired a religion. Did you know? The church, located in the city of Rosario, was opened in 1998 by a small collection of Maradona fans. And the religion has its own set of Ten Commandments, including name your first son Diego, <laughs> and the ball is never soiled. Although it may sound like a parody, yeah. according to The Guardian, the Church of Maradona yeah. has over 120,000 members and wow. devotees can even get baptised at the church. Followers of the Maradonian church have abandoned traditional year notations such as BC and AD right. and instead use DD. Oh, OK. Supporters count the years from Maradona's birth, meaning the DD stands for Después de Diego, oh, so after Diego. I see, okay. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. More interesting facts about Argentina. Yeah. In 1977, the Argentinian government sent a pregnant woman by the name of Silvia Morella di Palma 
to yeah. Antarctica to try and stake claim to a part of the continent. Oh, right, okay. At the time of her journey, yeah. Sylvia was seven months pregnant and her son Emilio Marcos Palma was born on January the 7th, 1978. He was the first person ever born in Antarctica. Wow. Despite Argentina's plan, the claimed territory of Argentine Antarctica is not recognised by the rest of the world. Oh, OK. And here's a corker about the country. Pope Francis, oh, you, you know, Pope Francis. Oh, the current Pope. Yeah. Yeah. He used to work as a nightclub bouncer in Buenos Aires. <laughs> Did he? That sounds like the beginning of a joke doesn't it? But it's actually true. Well, according to the internet, at least. So he can handle himself, that Pope. And another of Argentina's most famous countrymen mm. is uh, Che Guevara. Um, although a lot of people think he was Cuban, of course, because yeah. he uh, he went over there, didn't he, to, uh, oh, yeah. to help out in the Cuban revolution. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, of course, played a key role in Castro's government. Oh. But he's actually Argentinian. Oh, okay. Um, and you know that famous picture of uh, Guevara. Yeah, with his beret. That's the one. It's known as Guilero Heroica. Oh, okay. Heroic warrior, is it? Is that what it means? Something like that. And so famous is that photograph, it's been named the most famous photograph of all time oh. by the Maryland Institute of Art. Okay. Um, while the Victoria and Albert Museum here in London mm. has stated that the image has been reproduced more than any other image in all of history. Oh, wow. How okay. about that? Yeah. But I bet you can't name the photographer of the world's most famous photograph. No. Well, I'll tell you. It was a bloke called Alberto Corda. Mm -hmm. um, and he claimed no payment for the picture and has never asked for royalties. Wow. Because the photograph helped, he said, become the ultimate symbol of Marxist revolution and anti-imperialist struggle. Mm. Yeah. However, Corder did not want commercialisation of the image related to products he believed Che Guevara would not support, mm. especially alcohol. So when in uh, the year 2000, Smirnoff Vodka used Che's picture in one of their commercials, mm. Corder claimed his moral rights, which yeah. is a sort of form of copyright law. Well, I suppose it's like intellectual property. And he sued the advertising agency Low Lintas and Rex Features, the company that provided the photograph. And the final result was an out-of-court settlement of 50,000 US dollars. But Corder, rather than keep that, he donated it to the Cuban healthcare system. What a good guy. Which I would hope he's pretty comfortable himself then. Well, he's a good guy, isn't he? And he yeah. stated, quote, if Shea was still alive, he would have done the same. I'm sure he would have. Indeed. And talking of Shea Guevara, did you know the name Shea is actually just a nickname that oh, he yeah. inherited as an adult? Right. It translates to something like mate or pal. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. But his real name was Ernestito. Ernestito. Which means... Little Ernest. Little Ernest, yeah. And when I, and when I found out that, I decided to write a, a dad joke. And would you like to hear it? Go on then. With great trepidation. So I say, you know that Che Guevara? Yeah. And you say, yeah. And then I say, oh, I don't much care for his character. And you say, well, why is that? And I say, it's because he's a little earnest. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah, but that would only work if people know that his name is Ernestito. Hey, come on, that's I'm giving you gold here. Well done, Dad. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity.